0: This is the Hunt Quietly podcast. I'm Matt Rinella. Justin Broughton, and David Fontenot. How are you guys doing?
1: Doing great. Uh, yeah. Another another beautiful day here in the Dakotas, watching it snow outside. Yeah.
0: It's snowing here too in eastern Montana, where I am.
2: It's Did sixty see- degrees and sunny in Denver.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I
2: would take it. I would take it.
1: It's been a tough one here. We're we're just about double our normal normal snowfall here for the year, so it's been a oh fall.
0: yeah. I keep hearing about how you guys are getting snow. I got some. I have some research plots that are going to get put in in
1: South Dakota this spring,
0: and we're trying to figure out
1: when we're going to do it yeah right now really no end in sight we're we're supposed to get snow most of the week here i'm in eastern south dakota and sioux falls so we're supposed to get snow most of the week and really no warming trends in sight for the next two weeks so i'm kind of glad to hear that from my
0: standpoint of this research because i'm i'm going on a long vacation and i'm afraid that it's going to be go time while i'm on vacation and um what What go time is, is like when the plants in these projects, what we're doing is a project trying to get flowering plants to grow on CRP lands. Okay. And uh, it's go time right after the plants start to to emerge. So I'm hoping for a late spring right now.
1: Yeah, I would say you're probably in the clear right now, unless something crazy happens end of April, I would guess with soil temps getting up to where things would start to grow at this point. Okay, well, I get back on April eighth. So, oh, you'll be you'll be plenty good. Spent a lot of time turkey hunting, uh, you know, here and typically those first two weeks of the season, mid-April, there's really no emergent growth at all in the woods. Okay, unless we get a, an early spring where it's been very warm. Okay, but this this year that's not going to happen. I, you'll you'll be plenty good on April eighth. Okay, so we're going to talk
0: about some legislative issues. Facing South Dakota hunters, that's the topic, but before we jump into this, I wanted to ask you, Justin, does your state fish and game management agency have any kind of program that facilitates access
1: on private land? Uh, They do, yes. So we have, it's called a walk-in area program, and those acres are leased uh, through hunter license dollars. And we also have a habitat stamp program in South Dakota that was launched a couple of years ago. And those dollars also, uh, some of those dollars are earmarked for habitat projects. And some of them are earmarked for um, private land access programs as well. But those are all managed through the walk-in area program. And we also have a program that's called PREP, which is the Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program. And those acres are typically in one of two river valleys right now, the James River Valley or the Big Sioux River Valley. And that uh, is a program where our game and fish will uh, basically lease CRP acres from landowners in those drainages. Uh, and that's going to be primarily pheasant habitat uh, for the most part. But there's also deer hunting and things on it as well. As you, as you all know, with CRP, there's it benefits uh, a lot of different critters. So Uh, That's a good program, too. So we've got that in addition to the walk-in program.
0: I'm trying to get people to come on from the, from fish and game management agencies from various states to talk about those programs. So, yeah, an invitation to you, if you ever wanted to reach out to one or more of those folks and come on and talk about the program, I'd be
1: really keen on doing that. Yeah. I, I think the art fish and game guys are pretty good about jumping on and talking about that stuff, especially if it's going to raise awareness of it or anything like that. I think that they'd certainly probably be willing. I can, uh, I'm actually going to be, uh, in state capital next week, meeting with some of our commissioners, uh, and there'll be some of the department staff at that meeting as well. I'd be happy to extend the invitation.
0: Great. And then uh, it'd be Wonderful if you would want to come on and interview them with me. I want to ask the question of I've got five different states lined up, but I want to ask the question what can the sportsmen do to support these programs? Yeah, I don't absolutely. Know, I don't know if you've heard of what what I've been involved with here in Montana with our block management programmer. Have you heard anything about that? Um, I do know what block management is, but uh, I haven't heard what you're specifically now. So completely independently of this podcast and social media thing that we collectively call the Hunt Quietly movement, um, we have, I'm involved, I'm a founding member of Montana Hunters for Access. And what we do is we raise money and buy appreciation gifts for ranchers and farmers that are enrolled in the program and put up with the hassle allowing of allowing public hunting on their property and then we also we also organize work projects um in the summer where we go out and help with whatever the rancher or farmer wants and i'm bringing this up for a strategic reason right now we just got done. We give the we give these gifts out at block management appreciation dinners, and every region. And there's seven hunting regions in Montana, and we're we're right now that we're only operating in region seven. And although we already got a few people talking about bringing it to their regions and starting chapters there, but. Every region has two of these dinners, where the egg community participates. The segment of the egg community that participates in the program comes in. They get a dinner, and then um, where there's a lot of raffle prizes and stuff. We gave a calf shelter at each of the two dinners, and a bunch of we raffled off. Um, not r- raffle. That's when you get money for it. No, gave away through mm-hmm. a drawing. Yes, Um, cash shelter and a bunch of gift certificates to home and ranch and home supply stores and things like that but we also elicited we went around with a sheet of paper and asked the ranchers there this is the first year we did this whether they'd be interested in having a few people come out and help for a day or two this summer and we had no idea what to expect but we 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 didn't know if anybody had signed that, but we got like 60 different ranches that signed that. So there's interest in it. And I'm a little bit nervous right now because we only have 30 volunteers signed up to help. So you can go if you're listening to this right now and you hunt block management in, in eastern Montana and you want to do something to support it and keep people in the program and keep them from going with freaking land trust or an outfitter then come out for a day or two this summer and help us out you know it'll be anything from a few people want to help with lawn work um painting unclogging pivot nozzles who knows what we might be organizing somebody's underwear drawer i have no idea what we're getting into (laughs) Um, but go to montanahunteraccess.org montanahunteraccess.org and sign up there and then we'll reach out to you and there'll be a lot of latitude about when you could come out because we're gonna have several little projects little teams going out and just something to give back and keep keep hunting opportunity open to the public non-pay high quality hunting opportunity open to the public so that's my pitch there
1: I love the idea, Matt. I'd, I'd love to see us do something like that here in South Dakota. I, I hear stories from ranchers and landowners that are enrolled in those programs all the time. And, you know, they're always dealing with with issues with, you know, people driving where they're not supposed to, leaving gates open, littering, you know, just just a lot of the things that go on out there. And, you know, it, it, from time to time, it'll cause them to take their property out of those programs. I think it's the very least we can do to show them some appreciation exactly like they're doing and to also, you know, just share a little bit, uh, uh, of the appreciation that we have for them enrolling their lands in those programs. Agreed. Yeah.
0: Thanks for the support. And yeah, I'll, I look forward to hearing back from you on that. Maybe we could someday
1: have a national hunters for access, you know, it is, uh, you know, in my opinion, it's our biggest challenge is access. And that's really a great segue into what we're trying to do here in South Dakota relative to, um, you know, overcrowding and things on the public lands that we do have. What do you do for a living? Uh, I actually work at a bank here in Sioux Falls. I've, I've, uh, been in the uh, financial services industry for about 30 years. Um, so I, I, do that. Um, you know, I've been an avid hunter and fisherman my entire life, uh, you know, primarily bow hunting. I've, uh this last year was my uh 35th season of bow hunting in South Dakota. I've done it since I was 12 years old, so it's kind of a it's been a passion of mine and and it's something that I'm extremely passionate about.
0: And what's your position with South Dakota Bow
1: Hunters? Uh, I'm the president of the organization. I've held that role for just a little over a year. And how many members are there? Uh we've got uh, about 300 total members of South Dakota Bow Hunters right now within the state. Uh Uh, you know, we, we continue to grow that, um, you know, we, we'd like to have more obviously, but it's, uh, it's been a challenge as a lot of, uh, state organizations have seen over the past 10 years or so, you know, membership has continued to go down and it, it is a struggle to get people involved and to try to protect their rights. Why
0: is, why are, why is membership going down? Uh,
1: you know, it's a, it's a huge problem, um, you know, really, not just with South Dakota bow hunters specifically, but uh, you know, I've had some involvement with organizations like Pope and Young and and other uh, organizations, and you know, membership has has continued to be a challenge. And I don't know if it has more to do with um, you know people being more apathetic about um, you know legislative issues or challenges that come up to uh, you know not specifically just bow hunting but hunting in general. Um, and I think that, you know, some of it, too, is I, I think some people have a hard time seeing what those dollars are specifically doing for them. Um, you know, if they, have a, if they have to pay 25 or $40 for a membership, whatever the, the price is, uh, you know, maybe those dollars are better spent somewhere else for them as opposed to an organization that they don't always actively see supporting their rights. Uh, you know, we do a ton of lobbying in our state capital and with our game commission to try to get additional access, uh, for bull hunters here in South Dakota and, you know, additional seasons, uh, additional tag opportunities to try. Um, uh, you know, we do, uh, a ton of donations to local archery clubs. There's a, a lot of great things that the club does, uh, but it's hard just to, to garner that interest and, and inclusiveness of, of, you know, all the bull hunters that we have in the state. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you guys on R three? Um, you know, we're, uh, R3 is a, a, interesting topic as, as you well know, there's, um, you know, R3, uh, we're supportive of R3 in the right formats. Um, we certainly love to see kids get involved in hunting. Um, you know, the, the, uh, um, as far as expansion of our, our current hunting opportunities. Uh, yeah, absolutely. When it makes sense, but it's got to make sense. The resource has to be there. The access has to be there. Um, you know, the experience, uh, for our bow hunters here in South Dakota, both resident and non-resident alike is, is really the focus. You, You can't have R3 and recruit, retain, reactivate hunters when they're not having a good experience when they they don't have the ability to have a place to hunt or um you know have access to to quality game um or you know quality game populations Uh, i i think r3 is is a it's a good concept but in reality it can be challenging relative to the availability of resources yeah and i think that
0: nationwide the availability resources is so outstripped by the number of hunters that I wouldn't give a thin dime to a nonprofit that's engaged in R three. I, 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 uh, with, a, I don't know about you guys, but you're nonprofit, but I, with a lot of them, it's just comical to me that like crowding be such an issue and they're still doing it. So at some point it becomes so ridiculous that it's quite obvious that they do it because it's an expectation of the people that give them money you know the gear the gear manufacturers and stuff like that you know like right now here in my in Montana I just had a guy on from Montana BHA Kevin Farron, and we were talking about legislative issues here and he's a friend of mine we we butt heads a lot on things but I'm like they're they are sponsoring a bill right now that would cap the number of non-resident turkey hunters and the number of non-resident bear hunters and they're supporting a bill that would restrict the number of field days non-resident hunters could pursue upland game birds and i'm like how can you be doing that and still promoting hunting you know, we could get into a discussion about what R3 entails. And I mean, if a kid wants to learn how to shoot his bow and go deer hunting and his parents aren't into it, there should be something for that, a mechanism by which that kid can get the instruction he needs. Obviously, you'd have to be a real prick to not be be supportive of that. But that's, I mean, most of these nonprofits go way further than that. They try to drum up interest in hunting, bring people (laughs) into hunting.
2: The states are doing the kid-based stuff, like all the kid, like youth hunting days and youth hunting workshops. So that's almost all state-based as far as I've seen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we don't need to, to dwell on, on that anymore. Um, so these 300 bow hunters. Do you, yeah, do you guys have a, I bet you don't, but I'm just going to ask anyway, and then we're going to get to, you know, the legislation that you want to talk about, but just one more kind of tough question first. Do you guys have a stance on people
1: gripping and grinning online? Um. You know, we don't have a particular stance on it. We want it done properly. Uh. You know, tasteful trophy photos will support obviously, um, you know, distasteful ones, um, you know, a lot of blood and gore, uh, obviously is concerning for us, but, um, you know, if you're, if you're celebrating a, um, you know, a trophy animal or, you know, a first harvest, something like that, absolutely support it. Um, but done tastefully. Mm-hmm. Um, what if it's know. being
2: done to promote products? versus um, just one of your members
1: you know again uh you know our association specifically doesn't have a stance on it in in our bylaws that we've put out there um you know personally myself i find it distasteful um but uh you know our association doesn't have a uh, um, doesn't have a stance on it so i think that david and i and the rest of our group
0: thinks that the ability to put dead and dying animals on computers, to anyone willing to look is a cause of crowding. It, we believe that it, it turns hunting into a popularity contest whereby people want to be as successful as absolutely possible, so that they can gloat on the computer and draw attention to themselves and get sponsors and make money and become like a celebrity. So the biggest negative impact of that in my mind is probably leasing. People want to be as, as successful as possible. And the, the limiting factor in that is access to quality hunting habitat. So I think that I, 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 it's a, it's a, it's hard to draw a straight line, but to me, it's like. It's absolutely the case. I'm absolutely convinced that putting dead and dying animals online, it incentivizes hunting for shitty reasons. So you got people out there that wouldn't be out there otherwise, and it incentivizes the privatization of wildlife. So, I mean, I'm not trying to get you to right now change your stance on that, but I it's hard to talk to somebody that's concerned about crowding without bringing up what I, and I think David, think is a major source of crowding that would be really easy to do away with just to stop putting dead shit on the computer. There's yeah, no I, value
1: in it. There's no value did, in it. I do agree with you a hundred percent on that line of thought, Matt, you know, especially with, um, you know, if you do just, I'll just use South Dakota specifically as, uh, as an example, uh, you know, you can go on YouTube and, and just do a, a search for, um, black Hills, Turkey hunting, for instance, I'll use that as an example because that we're coming up on Turkey season. Now we have unlimited, uh, Turkey tags in the black Hills, And our turkey population in the Black Hills has been struggling for uh, mightily for years. Uh, It just continues to go down. Harvest rates continue to go down. Success continues to be a challenge. Uh, But yet I could go on YouTube right now and find hundreds of videos of people promoting their turkey hunt in the Black Hills. And and production value of those videos ranges from pretty good to absolutely terrible. But, uh, you know, there's literally hundreds of them out there and people watch them and Um, you know, everybody wants to pursue the grand slam of turkey hunting. And that's one of the few places that you can shoot a Miriam's Turkey on public land, um, and the pressure just gets to be higher and higher each year. And, um, you know, our our Turkey population, just like Turkey populations all over North America continues to struggle. Yeah,
2: every guy I hunt with in Colorado has a trip planned to the Black Hills for turkey season this year. <laughs> and I, I've never even stepped foot in South Dakota, but I've heard of the Black Hills for the last three or four years now just through podcasts and like Instagram and, and the whole nine.
0: Yeah. And like, I don't know. That's not that, that stuff. It's like, it does, it, it ticks me off when people draw attention to areas like, where there's people that hunt an area and they've been hunting it for years quietly for the right reasons. And then somebody shows up with a camera or in this case, lots of people show up with cameras. I think that's rude, but I think the more insidious effect is the, is the, the, are the ones I talked about. Like the, it, it has a global effect. It increases leasing, I think, and privatization. And I think that it, it also, there are field days, the number of field days, American hunters, put in in a year would be lower by some unknown amount. If it wasn't for the fringe benefits that come with putting dead stuff on the computer. And I don't, I, I don't, I don't think of that as a legitimate reason to hunt. I mean, so it's like, to me, it's like, that's a way to mitigate some of this crowding right there, you know?
2: Yeah. And yeah, South Dakota's gotten a lot of promotion. Like from what I've seen, I mean, I've seen a lot of South Dakota whitetail, turkey and pheasant content for sure. Big time. Uh,
1: yeah, I would, I would agree with that too. And, and it's starting to get, um, you know, more popular too with our, especially our antelope hunt, uh, the hunting public, uh, specifically has done and, um, you know, shown and promoted antelope hunting out here in public land, um, uh, you know, mule deer hunting as well. And we're literally the only Western state that has unlimited tags for mule deer and antelope. And we have a fraction of the population of those two animals that, you know, Wyoming or Montana has, which are two neighboring states. Mm. Um, just I just pulled up some stats on our Black Hills turkey season. And, um, you know, those tag sales in the last nine years have increased uh, 33%. Mm. Harvest has not increased, but the tag numbers have. And the satisfaction score that our Game Fish and Parks uh, puts out there on our surveys has decreased just about every single year. Um, you know, in the last five years. Oh wow!
2: Wow. So tags have gone up thirty three percent, The harvest is flat. That's crazy.
1: Yeah. So twenty thirteen, we issued forty five hundred licenses. Twenty twenty one, we issued sixty three hundred uh, and harvest, um, was, uh, 1500 and change and then 1700. So just a, a couple of ticks up, but pretty much, uh, wow. pretty much flat.
2: That's a lot. I, I
0: bet with a lot of game populations and hunting situations in this country above some threshold, the number of hunters and the harvest become inversely related, you know,
2: especially on public land.
0: Yeah. Well, even on private, if you like, but if you pushed the number of people high enough, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, enough of our stump speech. Uh, Justin, sorry for having to subject you to that, but yeah, no worries. I works. just got to get it out of my system <laughs> once or twice a week. I got to get it out of my system. Well, man, we I, I think on. it. <laughs>
1: I think it directly, you know, some of the things you're talking about, though, directly apply to the issues that we're, we're, um, you know, chasing down here in South Dakota. We, you know, with the, you know, the continued promotion of our, uh, you know, availability of licenses for our Western game species is really what's driving this change that we're trying to come about. Yeah. So
0: what do you guys, what, what are you, what are you supportive of? What are you trying to get done? what are you terrified of in the legislature
1: well it's uh you know it's really not a, a legislative issue it's our game commission that sets the seasons and tag numbers and okay. and that's what we're what we're dealing with okay. so it's uh, uh the, our legislature gives them the authority to do that so it's really a, a commission uh based problem so uh, for the last six years, we have brought, uh, petitions forward, um, in front of the Game Fish and Parks Commission here in South Dakota to try to place a cap and draw specifically on antelope and archery deer tags in South Dakota. Um, you know, archery antelope tags, uh, is a huge concern for us. Um, you know, we, in the last five years, that number's doubled, uh, the number of non-resident antelope hunters we've had. Oh, and, and it's not actually, capped at all. It's not capped at all. We're the only only Western state that has uncapped archery antelope tags for, for non-residents. So uh, it continues to go up and up. And as those, we know Wyoming's had some struggles with their herd the last couple of years, and those tag numbers have decreased. Um, you know, as those things have happened and people have had less opportunity to hunt states like Wyoming and Montana specifically, which are border states to South Dakota, uh, and also, um, you know, the antelope season was totally canceled for non-residents up in North Dakota and all for a few years. That's really just pushed all of those archers into South Dakota. And, you know, not only do we have unlimited archery antelope tags, but they're extremely affordable. Uh, our archery antelope tag costs $286. For uh, an either sex tag? For an either sex tag. Now, they did change it this year due to population struggles to an any buck tag. Um, but it had been either sex up up until um this past season. So one of the one of the things that we did this past year, um, you know, we we kind of get
0: can I stop you for just a second? Absolutely. Okay, so what's the typical experience of of a hunter during antelopes, archery antelope season on public land in South Dakota? Like how many people are you seeing? How many how freaked out are the, antelope, um, uh, the
1: antelope? The the antelope are pretty skittish. They they tend to get pushed primarily on the private lands. Um, you know, that uh, we have a uh, our land ownership types here in South Dakota are very check rewarded uh, by nature. We don't have large tracts of public land, um, you know, big chunks of BLM and things like that, like we have in, in Wyoming and Montana. Um so they tend to get pushed onto private lands. Now, we do still have access to some antelope on public lands. Um, you know, I've archery antelope hunted for many years, and, you know, I'm, I've had pretty good success at it, especially decoying antelope and things during the rut. Um, but the last few years, uh, you pop a decoy up in front of some of those antelope, and they have about turned themselves inside out. Uh, running away because every uh you know tom dick and harry is running around out there popping up decoys at them all day long and you know the pressure has certainly had an impact on antelope behavior and it has had a significantly negative uh, impact on our herd health in addition to grazing practices and we've had some bad winters and things too that have had that certainly play a role in it
0: you think the Uh, hunting pressure has hurt the fitness
1: of the herd um, not specifically. I think that, I don't, I think it plays a role in it certainly, Matt, but I don't think that that is the sole contributing factor. I think that the habitat drought, uh, all of those things play a much more significant role in it. I do think that, um, you know, the hunting pressure, especially on our public lands has changed the, the animal behavior somewhat. Mm uh you know the, and when you ask, ask me about the experience um you know it's it's very crowded on public lands especially um you know in the northwest corner of the state specifically uh, Butte and Harding counties um that's typically where the pressure is the highest um i actually took uh um my last trip out antelope hunting last year i actually took a, a notebook with me um just because of the position that i'm in and we're bringing these petitions forward and i was just checking at all the access points and things the uh the number of vehicles that i saw a number of hunters that we saw and i i would say um uh, probably about 10 to 1 non-resident to resident hunters that we saw out there during our antelope trip and that's fairly typical of what i've heard from many of my counterpart uh, resident antelope hunters that they go out and they see uh, a lot of non-resident hunters and it's very crowded and i actually know probably three or four resident antelope hunters that just don't do it anymore because of the pressure yeah
0: i I would imagine that modification and privatization of antelope is occurring simultaneously with this because those things tend to go hand in hand
1: it it is we do have uh quite a few uh antelope outfitters that have popped up in in that neck of the woods and And they're leasing leasing ranches yeah, yeah they are absolutely leasing ranches up and And, uh, um, you know, that's primarily where a lot of our harvest is occurring right now is in that part of the state. Um, and definitely a lot of leasing and uh, a lot of outfitting going on. Okay. So you've been trying
0: to draw the attention of your
1: wildlife board. What is it called again? Uh, the Game Fish and Parks Commission. Um, okay. So the commission, we've we've brought petitions in front of them to limit the number of uh, archery antelope tags um, for the past uh, handful of years. And we've we've started to get more traction this year. We're actually, the commission is actually voting on a proposal uh, this coming week uh, on Thursday, March 9th. And they are going to cap, uh, moving to cap the antelope tags at 450 non-resident tags. How many non-resident hunters have you had recent years? Uh, this past year, we had 1,100. Oh wow! So this was this is not just um, lip service. No, it's not. It's it's a good step in the right direction. the uh, The problem that is going to come into play with it, though, Matt, is that 450 tag cap. That's on public land only. Um, so there will still be unlimited tags for private land hunting. So if you're, um, you know, booking with an outfitter for instance, or if you have a ranching family friend that lives in South Dakota and you're going to come hunt on his land, you'll still have unlimited access to those antelope tags. So we may, uh, we may still issue 1100 tags total to non-resident archers, but we're going to limit them to 450 on public land. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because, um, uh, so we issued 1100 archery antelope tags to non-residents last year in South Dakota. We only issue 160 non-resident antelope rifle tags. So we issue 10 times more archery tags than we do, uh, firearms tags. The firearm mm. tags are very, are extremely limited. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're capped at 160 and those you have to draw for. And, um, you know, I've got buddies that, uh, in other states that would love to come here and shoot an antelope with a rifle and they have, uh, 10 plus years of points and still no tag in their pocket yeah so what this is gonna with going back to the archery
0: bit what I, I i'm imagining that like intuitively the effect of this is going to be that people from out of state that are of means are going to have opportunity and people in state hunters um that don't have money to spend on an outfit are going to be losing opportunity
1: uh, out, of, out of state hunters yes that don't have the means to book an outfitted hunt well but, and in but, state but, as but well right i mean they like, yeah they they have they given all kinds of tags
0: to people that are out of staters that are willing to pay for them
1: good luck getting onto any private anymore yeah it's been it's been that and it's been that way for quite a while it's it's tough um you know at least trying to limit the uh so we've got a a statutory limit on the percentage of tags that we can issue to firearms hunters uh non-resident firearm hunters so it's capped at eight percent of the total available licenses there is no cap uh similarly situated for archery tags in the state so archery tags are totally unlimited for non-residents but rifle uh permits are capped at eight percent of the total for non-residents mm. and ideally that's what we've pushed for uh, over the past few years is just to have a similar cap in place for archery tags for non-residents uh just to uh you know reduce that pressure and improve the experience for everybody um it's not uh, it's not that we're not anti-non-resident I, mean, I hunt as a non-resident every year somewhere and uh you know but i'm having to wait many years sometimes to draw that license and have that opportunity um, you know, uh, while well, I'll just use Wyoming elk, for instance, uh, my buddies that live over in Wyoming, they're getting a general elk tag every year. Uh, you know, if they don't draw their preferred area, um, you know, I'm waiting right now three plus years, um, you know, in the regular draw to, to get a general tag in Wyoming to hunt elk, yeah. uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be very similar, um, to, Anybody that wanted could hunt elk in Wyoming if that was unlimited. And that's what we're dealing with our archery deer and antelope tags here in South Dakota. So uh, do you guys think you're going to get this passed? Um, I'm pretty, I feel pretty good that we're going to get something done this year. Um, You know, I I have felt good about it in the past though. And all of a sudden things do a 180 in the 11th hour. Uh, So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of political pressure obviously for, from the tourism aspect. Uh, to bring people into south dakota Um, you know our our governor pushes very hard for that um, and she's interested in in having uh, as many visitors as possible come to the state so uh, there's that aspect of it Um, you know there's always the revenue aspect of it Um, obviously non-resident licenses bring significant amount of revenue to the department Uh, now i will say that the pheasant is king in south dakota Um, you know, we have uh, that, that's where the majority of the revenue comes from in South Dakota is non-resident pheasant hunting. Um, but they're, you know, the, the amount of money that comes in on these non-resident big game tags is not insignificant either. And that's another thing that we've looked at too, is, is trying to, you know, increase the cost of some of the non-resident tags a bit too, to line up better with, um, you know, not, not specifically Wyoming, but just some of the other States that are around us, Wyoming, Montana are significantly more expensive than South Dakota, and that helps um, you know, organically reduce the pressure a bit as well, uh, right, wrong or otherwise. Right. Right.
0: So, um, this bill, could, or it's not a bill, it's That's a proposal proposal, proposal. The proposals could still change. It could, it, it, right. It could change, um, and it, or it could stay the same and pass
1: or it could, or it could, um, stay the same and fail. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it could really go, it could go one of three ways. It could uh, ultimately fail. They could take the changes that we've asked for out of the proposal and leave the tags uncapped. Uh, They could, uh, you know, approve the proposal in its current form, which would cap uh, the antelope tags at 450 and it would cap the non-resident archery deer tags at 2200. Um, and or um, it could go a third way, they could make it more restrictive, which is what we've asked for. Uh, um, Specifically, we've asked them to move the antelope cap to 200 uh, Mm. as opposed to 450. That brings it more in line with that non resident rifle tag number of 160.
0: Have you Uh, asked them to do anything about this unlimited
1: on private, or is that just not something you want to? You know, we have not really challenged that. Uh, we've got a um pretty vocal land fit, landowner and outfitter alliance here in south dakota um they've got uh, a strong lobby uh, in the state capitol um we would prefer to at least see some form of cap go in um you know initially um you know i view this as step one we're we're kind of in the process of reviewing our deer management plan and things here in south dakota over the next year i think there's opportunities to address that down the road gotcha Anything with with turkeys? uh, Nothing with turkeys right now, but I, I do think that that's the next hill that we need to climb. Um, you know, we have unlimited, uh, turkey permits, uh, for archery as well. Uh, and then we have unlimited turkey permits in the black Hills. And I think that, uh, you know, the turkey hunting, in the black Hills specifically, uh, those unlimited permits is something that, that we need to look at too. And, and I think that it's, it, you know, just behooves us to look at how our populations are doing and, and, you know, make the right choices relative to some of these tags, Yeah, uh, you know? Antelope specifically, we actually, this last fall, so we have mentored antelope hunting, which is uh, you can take a youth out uh, and they can harvest a, um, a doe antelope. Uh, we took that opportunity away from our kids last year on public lands in South Dakota. Oh, but wow. Yet, but we issued 1100 non-resident archery permits yeah
2: that's but, so ass backwards uh it absolutely is sorry right. to be so so blunt there but that's just so, especially with like r3 and this whole movement now to like we need to portray hunting in the right light we need to secure the future we need to teach our kids like that's so
1: yeah so we took wrong. a took away yeah. the opportunity for you to take your son or daughter out to shoot a public land though antelope but uh uh you know non-residents came in and bought 1100 licenses and went out and and antelope punted. um so it was you know that that was a little disheartening to us last year when we saw that change go in. you know our, our deer uh you know the the cap on the deer too is is a, an important one to us and really it's, are we talking about white tails or mule deer um so that's the probably the root of the problem, Matt, is we don't specify species on our tag. It's an any deer tag. And we've tried that approach with the Game Fish and Parks Commission here in the past to try to separate those license types or have a mule deer authorization type situation like Kansas has, for instance. Um, And we've asked for that uh and we've asked for uh, access permits or similar to try to limit the mule deer harvest but that's the thing we have non-residents that have come to South Dakota and they um you know disproportionately target mule deer um so uh, as, as an example just statistically uh, non-resident archery hunters last year killed 525 mule deer bucks uh resident bow hunters killed 560 oh wow so you have, you have, out of the total archery harvest for non-residents, about 30% of that harvest consists of mule deer. Uh, and in, on the uh, resident side, only about 6%, 6 or 7%, right, in that range of the harvest consists of mule deer. So they're disproportionately targeting our mule deer in South Dakota. And that's why you know we we really need to separate the tag type to better manage that but we've not ever gotten any traction with that so we really need to cap the tags initially and then with this next year management plan start to talk through how we better manage that pressure specifically on that resource
0: yeah um it's it's kind of surprising to me that getting these things I don't know about there, but I mean, in South Dakota, there's a lot of hunters in South Dakota and like, there's a lot of hunters in Montana. It's, it's, it, it's always surprising me how hard it is to get anything done along these lines, because it seems like we would have a pretty, we'd be pretty
1: politically powerful, but I agree, but you know, it's the, uh, you know, from apathy for lack of a better term mm-hmm. of the average sportsman is, is very sad. You know, I, I can go down here to the, you know, to the coffee shop uh, on a Saturday morning and sit around and have coffee and talk to the, talk to the guys in there, or, you know, at the bar on a Saturday night or whatever, and everybody will complain about all these issues. But when these issues come up in front of the commission and we all have a public forum, an opportunity to testify in front of that commission, it's always the same half a dozen, eight, 10 guys that are showing up to testify on these things. And, you know, the you know it's really difficult just to even get people to send the emails or, or talk to the commissioners or make a phone call. Uh, and really, it, it boils down to it, it's a, an apathetic approach to our game management and having our voices heard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't On one hand. Well, it's, it's frightening that it's that way, but on the other hand, I can kind of understand it up until five or six years ago. I did nothing, nothing at all to, to, to protect my hunting. I just bottled, bought a license and hunted. That was it. You know, So I don't know how you get people to wake up and fight for the future for themselves and others and their kids, you know, but yeah, we call them shoulder shruggers, you know? I'm like, oh, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do?
1: Yeah, nothing is not the answer to that question. And that yeah, yeah. The, that unfortunately is the approach that um, you know just a lot of hunters are taking now, and uh, you know it's unfortunate. It and I think you hit it on the head of, earlier too. You know, we have all of these influencers out here that that like it or not have a voice, and very few of them are you know pushing these issues forward or drawing attention to it and you know, using that voice that they have for, you know, to affect positive change other than, you know, self-promotion or, you know, selling whatever it is they're trying to sell.
0: A lot of times I think that that's partially because they, they are very handcuffed in what they can say and what they can support because there's financial implications, you know, like if they, if a sell to go to hunting influencer, Came out in favor of some in-state preference kind of a thing. You could see where that
1: that would not sit well, maybe with some of their sponsors. Right. Yeah. Agreed. And if you know if their followers or whatever their their reach is, you know if half of those people are people that are would hunt here as a non-resident, that alienates half of half of their you know market base.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's weird to me. It's it's a, that's another big problem. Is that those are the people that. Ha- the people that have a voice in hunting are people that can't, are, are highly constrained in what they can say. You know? And that's why David and I are doing what we're doing is we want to say what we think needs to happen. And I think we have a more honest voice because there's nothing, there's, there's, there's no ulterior motive for us. You know, we don't have to balance our paycheck against what we think is right we can just say what we think is right you know um yeah so i don't know i don't i don't see i don't see the hunting celebrities bailing us
1: out of anything no i don't i don't think so either and and i do think that you know honestly just specific to the issue that we're talking about here today in in south dakota with the you know explosive growth we've seen in these in our non-resident archery visitors Uh, You know, I think that they have uh, played a large hand in that, you know, by promoting it on their platform and and generating interest in in coming here because of our easily, um, you know, easy access to tags and the public lands that we have. And, uh, you know, ideally, uh, you know, they would talk to that and you know say hey at some point it's got to stop you know you can't have exponential growth and expect to maintain the same experience and the same resource that we've had over the past you know 20 or 30 years yeah Yeah. they're they're all about go ahead david
2: i was gonna say i think beyond that i think not only are they the cause i think they're also going to be some of the staunchest um enemies of this direction we're seeing in south dakota montana and colorado right now of moving towards, in or Colorado's not doing this yet, but they're talking about doing it with archery elk moving towards in-state preference in order to preserve hunt quality because of these rises in out-of-state hunters. I mean, Colorado archery, OTC elk, since 2015, non-resident hunters have gone up 25%, I think. And resident hunters have gone down 17% to the point where in 2021, there were more non-resident Archery elk hunters, and there were resident archery elk hunters in Colorado, but the an influencer's success and in their ability to pr- promote content like relies heavily on their ability to travel from state to state between seasons and always be hunting and always putting stuff out during the season. So, you know, every limit of opportunity that I've seen go through anywhere. Uh, the big example now is Utah with their shed hunting closure because of the mule deer issues they're having with all the snow right now. Um, I mean, the, the shed hunting community on Instagram has been ticked off and sour and not supportive, even though it's biologists decision to do what they think is the best interest of wildlife. And I think you're going to see them oppose across the board on this kind of stuff, especially with non-resident or resident preference.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, the state of Wyoming has a shed season now as well. And they just, uh, I think they just passed a law here a week or so ago to give residents a weak preference over non-residents and shed hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wyoming has, has been a, it's always been an interesting state. They've done a very, very good job of protecting their residents ability to hunt and, and have a good experience versus non-residents. Now they do have a, a pretty high percentage of tags that go to non-residents uh, relative to some other states but they have done a lot too to to help their resident hunters
0: um i'm gonna switch gears a tiny bit if you don't mind absolutely um so w- david's been on board with hunt quietly stuff for i don't know six or seven months or well i guess they.
2: Six or seven, yeah, yeah. since we really start doing stuff.
0: Yeah. And then we have and I've I've only been doing it for a year. And then there's five or six other people that seem like they're starting to move towards kind of being committed. So I'm curious with three thousand members, is that what you said? Oh, uh, we have three hundred. Three hundred. I'm sorry, yep, three yep, hundred. It was off yep. by a factor of ten. Sorry. Yeah. I'd love how to many, have 3,000, Matt. Yeah. How, how many of them are engaged in like, uh, let me define like at a level where every week they're doing something for the cause. Maybe they're not spending 20 hours a week, but they're doing something. Uh, you
1: know, I would say of our membership, we've got a pretty good group of people that are fairly engaged one way or another. We have lots of, uh, lots of archery shop owners that are, um, you know, doing things uh, and talking to, um, you know, state officials and, and department officials. We've got, uh, you know, our uh, our board uh, of nine people is, is super engaged all the time. Um, I would say as a percentage of our membership, it's probably um, a pretty good uh, representative number as opposed to some other organizations. But, uh, you know, it's never enough. Right, right. Yeah, I
0: just, I just the, the reason I'm asking is, if you haven't gathered, it's just I'm just wondering what the future brings for us. Will we'll, a year from now, we will we have more talent, you know? Because uh, um, that would be very exciting. You get a little more talent, and it goes a long way. A little pet
1: talent and a little passion goes a long way. It does. And I I will say that just this specific issue and, uh, you know, we've brought a couple of a new members on our board. Um, you know, Rob Mahaffey, for instance, Rob hooked us up with this, um, with this podcast today. Uh, you know, Rob's been, been great in in growing our footprint out there and our exposure. And we've had a lot of people that have uh, become members just over the course of the last couple of weeks relative to this specific issue just because it's near and dear to their heart and it'd be, it'd be great if the, you know, the bow hunters in South Dakota understood all the things that SDBI has done for them over the years. You know, we were, uh, we were the, really the sole reason that we have an archery elk season in South Dakota, oh. uh, you know, for, for many years, um, they didn't think you could kill an elk with a bow. Um, oh. you know, this is back in the, back in the um, 80s, uh, you know, and, and we had our board membership um, you know, came in and and you know, proved, proved to them that you could and you know, really pushed for that elk season. And we're the reason we have an elk season here. And you know, the South Dakota Bow Hunters really has been the voice for bull hunters here in this state for many years. We're you know, the reason that we have some of the season structures that we have, um, the tag structures that we have are pretty liberal for resident bow hunters and non resident bull hunters have benefited from that as a byproduct. You know, we've gotten a lot of heat in the last couple of weeks too uh, for, you know, being anti non resident. And nothing can be further from the truth. We're not anti non resident. We're uh, all for the resource and the experience. And we want people to be able to come to South Dakota and have a healthy game population to hunt and have a good experience relative to land access and not being overcrowded. And we can't allow our. Uh, non-resident license sales to continue to grow exponentially it's doubled in the last five years for deer it's gone from uh, you know 3,500 to over 6,000 yeah and if, if that growth continues it'll be 9,000 in another few years and we just don't have the public land or the mule deer resource specifically to continue to support that
0: yeah i think that that's completely reasonable uh who wants to go to some state to hunt another state to hunt and just to have it to be a complete shit show you know, you know, who was, you know, who was, uh, so I I gotta be careful. Cause I'll get a bunch of emails about you're now, you're like, just trying to advocate for in-state, for da, da, da. it's not something I take a strong, a strong stance on. I'm on board with everything you're trying to do. I mean, it's like a very balanced approach. And so I will sign on to what you're, what you're doing, you know, but I'm, I, I'm not as far as like the, my second podcast guest was first podcast guest was Rob Shaw from mountain pursuit. You know, him. I know
1: know of him, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, so he's very staunchly in state preference, you know, so people didn't like, they were afraid that that's where I was going. But I'm like you. I'm like, yeah, I'm not trying to lock other people out. I'm just trying to make it when they come here, they might not be able to come here as often, but when they do that, it's a reasonable experience for them. So, yeah. oh, I was going to say, You know who aligned with us on that is uh, Aldo Leopold. I read a quote of his, I read this article he wrote in the journal of forestry in 1919. And he was talking about how tags should be allocated. um, Preferentially to residents. Same as like us three, probably like, some gotta go to out of staters, but you know, you gotta take care of the people that live in the state.
1: Yeah, and you know, we we are the ones that uh, we live here. Um, you know, year round. I, you know, the argument on the flip side of that is, uh, you know, non residents bring um, you know revenue into the state from traveling. You know, at the local cafe, the local motel. That stuff's not happening generally with our antelope hunters specifically. Um, I'll go out and every piece of BLM land that touches a gravel road has three or four tents set up on it. You know, those, those people aren't necessarily doing anything other than buying gas at the gas station. They're bringing their food with them and they're, they're tent camping. They're not uh, bringing in a ton of revenue other than the, the tag sale and the same thing with our deer hunters too, especially on some of our bigger blocks, of public land out west and you know a lot of the non-resident deer hunters are primarily hunting whitetails as well in the east but uh, you know big block of them as we you know the stats prove are targeting mule deer and you know they're not bringing a ton of income into the state relative to eating at the local cafe or going and staying at the the local motel they're out camping and they have their food with them and they're pretty self-contained and um you know it so i i challenge that um, tourism aspect of it a little bit
0: yeah i know if i wish that that i wish that argument was just became unpopular it's not it, it won't it's very it's the argument that resonates with the business community but this idea that we're going to use our wildlife access to our wildlife to generate revenue from other states i don't i don't know it's like I just think a hunting is too important to have that be a deciding factor.
2: Well, and it's part of one of the central tenants on Pope and young. If you go to the, um, you know, the North American conservation, wildlife, North America wildlife conservation model, one of the key tenants is denying an economic value to wildlife. Yeah. And if yeah. you are associating economic value with them from a tourism impact or anything like that, you've lost sight of the core of our conservation model in this country.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: Are you going to the Pope and Young banquet, Justin? I am not. I, I, you know, I have gone quite a few times in the past. This year, the dates don't align well for some other things that I've got to do. So, had to make some choices, and unfortunately, I will not be in Reno this year. I've never gone, but I'm going this year. They asked me to speak. Oh, great! Great. It's a it's a wonderful, um, wonderful, wonderful event. Um, Like I said, I've been to it several times. I've been a um, you know I was the youth coordinator for Pope and Young for a few years. I've been uh, pretty heavily involved with them too. They're they're a great organization. You'll have a good time out there. I'm speaking a lot of like-minded folks.
0: Oh, not with me, maybe.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of
0: things that I don't like that they do. I mean, I think that the I can't imagine somebody worse for hunting than John Dudley and that's their keynote. Um, So we, there might be a little daylight between us there. I'm sure they do some good things, but I think they do some horrible things too. Um, And I'm not going to pull any punches uh, when I'm talking to them about that. But uh, my talks on a Thursday, how many people do you think will be there?
1: Uh, you know, most of the people that attend that convention are there for the, the duration. You know, they okay. get there early and they'll be there through the, you know, I would say six or 700 maybe in that range. I'll have six or 700 at you, my... You won't at yours specifically. That's how many convention attendees I would assume would probably They have be. concurrent sessions going on? Yeah. You know, some of the sessions I've been in, um, you know, it d- just depends on the interest level, you know, maybe 40 to 60. Okay.
2: I'm going to put money on a hundred for you, Matt minimum. I think the controversy in <laughs> the name is is going to boost your numbers.
1: I, I think <laughs> so too. I, I, I do think so. I, um, I'd hate, I'd just be bummed if I go all the way down there and there's 10 people in the room, you know Yeah. you you know the best thing uh, about the Pope and Young Convention is the people. Uh, you know the networking and the people that you meet. Um, you know outside of the the you know, ev- you know the event brings everybody there, um, but just all the bow hunters that you get to interact with and and share time with is is really the, always been the value of the convention for me.
0: Are there going to be a lot of people coming up? To, well, maybe not me, but do they? Is there, I just don't like going to stuff like that, and then there's always some guy that. Has his phone and he's showing you pictures of people that he doesn't of shit people shot that he doesn't even know, you know, that kind of
1: yeah. I wouldn't <laughs> say, I wouldn't say that kind of
0: guy, I that, wouldn't that's say, a kind
1: of guy, you know. Uh, I wouldn't say there's a lot of that that goes on there, Matt, because okay. you don't go up to some of the guys that are at the Pope the Young convention and try to show them the stuff that you've shot because you've got a lot of guys that are that are super slammers and they've been there and done that. and. Um, uh, you know, they've bow hunted all over the world and, you know, it, that doesn't gain a lot of traction. Now telling okay. a good hunting story and, and sharing something that's meaningful and, uh, just talking about bow hunting in general. Uh, there's going to be a lot of that, that goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a lot of chest thumping. Okay. Okay. Anything else you two? Uh, No, I just, uh, I just appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share some of our, our thoughts on what we're trying to accomplish and, and, uh, um, taking the time to talk with me today.
0: Yeah. You saw the codons need to get on board and help Justin's and his group. Okay. Get out there.
2: Yeah, where, do the right where thing. Should we, uh, where should we direct people to, Justin? If they want to, we're going to get this out asap so they can support you before the ninth. So yeah, um, I'm, so, be, I'm So, to do so there's now. a uh,
1: so there's a couple of different things that uh, you can do. You know, primarily if if you support our stance and and you want to see, uh, you know, if you're a South Dakota resident or even a non-resident bow hunter that wants to see their experience continue to be positive here in South Dakota. Uh, just reach out to our game fish and parks commission uh, and uh, you know you can uh, there's a online form that you can fill out to submit your commentary this uh, up until uh, thursday of this week and that's uh, at our south dakota game fish and parks website Um, you can google that and it's easy to find Uh, just look for the uh, position form on that website and you can submit comments there um, you know, if you would like to become a member of, of South Dakota Bull Hunters Association, we, we welcome resident members, non-resident members. Um, you can go to sdbi.net uh, and sign up for a membership there. Um, you know, you can, um, you know, find us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, all of the, the normal social platforms as well and reach out to us there and we'd be happy to Happy to direct you at how to submit comments to the Game Fish and Parks Commission uh this week, both in support and um, you know, not in support of the proposal. Um, you know, everybody has a, an opinion one way or another. And uh, you know, it's I just like to see everybody take an active role in the process. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point.
0: I mean, sometimes the best idea is not your idea, but the more people that are engaged, likely the more
1: you're going to arrive at the right solution, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The more of us that, um, you know, get involved and and share our thoughts and opinions and take an active role in this, just from an understanding perspective of how the process works and knowing that we have a voice and how our seasons are set and, and, you know, the not necessarily the tag numbers, those are typically biologically driven. Uh, but we do have some say in, in how those tags are allocated and and how those seasons are set. Yeah.
0: Well, this is going to be up in just an, an hour or two at the most. So if you want to spread the word, um, you can rely on, on people being able to find it. Well, great. I look forward to it. Okay. Guys, enjoy the rest of your weekend.
1: Thanks Matt. Thanks. All right. Good nice night you
0: guys. Take
1: care. Bye.